1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture with me, Neil Denny. This week, a story of human feeling with optogenetics pioneer, Carl Dyseroth, and his new book, Connections. Carl Dyseroth is the D.H. Chen Professor of Bioengineering and of Psychiatry and Behavioural Sciences at Stanford University. He is known for creating and developing optogenetics and hydrogel tissue chemistry Advanced Technologies for Studying the Function of the Brain Intact, Allowing Complex Emotions to be Studied at the Level of Individual Cells. A member of the National Academy of Medicine, the National Academy of Sciences, and the National Academy of Engineering, Dysaroff has received numerous prizes for his discoveries, including the Kyoto Prize, the Breakthrough Prize, and most recently, the 2020 Heineken Prize in Medicine. And we're going to be talking about Carl's first book of popular science today, Connections, a story of human feeling. And before we do, I just wanted to say personally that It's only a couple of months ago that I interviewed on this show the novelist Yaa Jarsi about her new novel Transcendent Kingdom, in which the protagonist is an optogeneticist at Stanford, uh, a field of science that I was at that time ignorant of, and we talked about it in the book. And it turns out that that protagonist was actually based on somebody that worked in Cole's lab. So it's um, (laughs) it's an absolute pleasure to actually finally meet the... uh, the actual pioneer of optogenetics. Carl, welcome to Little Atoms.
3: Well, thank you, Neil. Uh, it's a, I'm delighted to be here. And yes, that's absolutely right. The uh, protagonist, there was a star student and postdoctoral colleague in the lab, uh, Christina Kim, who uh, indeed both advised uh, that wonderful book, Transcendent Kingdom, and is an absolutely amazing scientist and optogeneticist, uh, if you will, in the lab as well. So yeah, that, a wonderful bit of, uh, of synchronicity.
2: Tell me, first of all, what you're attempting to do with this book. What's the idea behind it?
3: I had been, in many ways, always wanted to be a writer, and so that, that uh, desire was always there. But what I noticed in the last few years, there was a tremendous convergence of threads that really made it a moment to reach out to everybody. And that's a convergence of what science and technology in terms of studying the brain, the place that it's brought us to is quite eye-opening, quite illuminating. It's shifted the whole landscape of how we can understand the brain. And then coming from the other side, you have these stories, human stories uh, from my clinic, from my patient care Emergency psychiatry, coupled together with what we're seeing all around the world in these extraordinary times of, of stress and trauma, and this convergence of the the science and the human stories, seemed to me something that the world, in many ways, might need at at this time. And so it was for me; it was a a labor of both my long-held calling and, and just uh, a chance to reach out to, to everybody and, and try to bring these threads together for a shared understanding.
2: And in some ways, that's in the spirit of your lab as well, because your lab is a very collaborative place with lots of different you know, people from different fields working together.
3: That's right. It's, it's, I feel incredibly lucky to be able to talk to the people I talk to, to have the scientists and engineers and physicians in the lab who all come together and work side by side sometimes it's a challenge to translate among the different disciplines to scientists and engineers don't always get along well but if you can get over that first energy barrier if you will the first awkward conversation then amazing things happen and so uh, a big part of what I do is is getting groups of people past that that energy barrier moment and then uh, then the magic happens
2: So tell us first of all how you ended up a psychiatrist because it was there's quite an unexpected time during your medical training?
3: It was. I I went to medical school and did research with the idea of wanting to understand the human brain and how emotions are created and how they're stirred by words and, and ideas. But I had never considered psychiatry. I had thought that neurosurgery would be the way to get the most direct interaction with the human brain in ways that mattered. And so that was what I had steered myself toward was neurosurgery. And my first clinical rotation was neurosurgery and I loved it. I loved the operating room and the precision of suturing and the the ability to help people immediately. But then I did my psychiatry uh, experience, which was required. It is required. And uh, I probably wouldn't have done it otherwise. And my whole life was transformed by that, both the depth of the the suffering that the patients experienced, and the depth of the mystery, the fact that we had so little understanding of these human beings and what was going on within them, that all came together in me in in one moment, one uh, experience. I was sitting in the locked unit, the patient ward where uh, very severely ill psychiatric patients are being treated, moving toward coming back out into the world, but very, very ill people And I encountered a patient who had something we call schizoaffective disorder. It's a very, very serious mix of mania and psychosis and depression all mixed up together. And it's uh, very debilitating. And this patient had some idea about me. I didn't really know what it was, but he started screaming at me. And I remember just looking at this human being and I saw the, the depth of the suffering and the extent of the mystery and and that was it for me i i became a psychiatrist effectively in that moment and you know it's it's a it's a good story to look back on because it it reveals how much we need to experience things directly to understand each other but that was the moment that that changed everything for me
2: describe for us then what optogenetics is
3: optogenetics is a technology we developed in the lab back uh, beginning in 2004 so it's been around a long time but at the time it was quite a step forward because what it does is it allows us to control things in the brain with high precision, and it uses light to do that. And in a way, that's, that's backwards from how we normally think of light. We think of light as a way to observe, to collect information. But with optogenetics, we use light to control things, to make things happen. And the way this works, it's, it's quite interesting. You know, Normally, the cells in the brain, they're, they're all electrical. And so if you just put an electrode into the brain and try to stimulate cells, you'll get all the cells. You'll stimulate all the cells that are near the electrode because they're all electrical. Now, if you're in the brain and you deliver light instead, nothing much will happen. It's, it's dark in the brain and the cells don't respond to light. But that's a big opportunity because what if you could make just some cells respond to light? That would be a big difference. If you were able to target light responsivity to just the cells you care about, maybe the dopamine secreting cells or, or maybe the inhibitory cells that quiet things down. And then you delivered light. Well, you'd have a real signal there, right? Because none of the other cells would be responding directly to light. And so that's what we did. That's called optogenetics. We took a gene, a bit of DNA from algae, from single-celled green algae, as far as you could imagine across the tree of life. But these algae make a beautiful little protein that turns light photons into electrical current. And it does that for its own purposes. It does that to guide itself to photosynthetic uh, environments that are right for it movement of ions, movement of charged particles across the membrane, which this little protein does in response to light, that movement of ions is the language of neurons in our brain, brain cells being on or off. So what we did was take this beautiful little protein from algae, and we use genetic tricks to put it into one kind of cell or another kind of cell, or another connection, maybe a projection from one part of the brain to another. And then we can play in activity. We can turn up or down with precision, the activity of one kind of cell or one connection, we bring in the light with fiber optics. We can also use holograms. We can play in many spots of light with 3D holograms. And then we can see all this is happening in the, in the brain of a behaving mammal, like a mouse or a rat, like us. Smaller brain, yes, but a lot of the same basic structures. And we can see how playing in or inhibiting patterns of activity guide very specific behaviours, behaviours that matter to us, things that relate to symptoms, things that relate to cognition, to action. And at the end of the day, we end up knowing what really matters, which cells actually matter for, for which sensations, cognitions and actions. And that's, that's the opportunity of optogenetics.
2: So we've given some selected cells in a brain, this important piece of DNA. But we still have the problem here that the cells are in the middle of a brain in a skull in somewhere that never normally sees light. So how is the light source, whether that's a a laser or optical fiber or hologram, as you said, actually delivered to the cells?
3: Yeah, so this was a big challenge we had to meet. Uh, Optogenetics wasn't solved in a moment. It took Between five or seven years, uh, depending on how you look at it, to really solve all the challenges from the first moment that we put in the gene from algae into neurons, it took about another, I would say, five to seven years before we'd really solved all the problems, including what you're talking about, the light delivery issue. And so depending on what we're studying, we can do it a number of different ways now. The simplest way is we take a fiber optic. It's almost as thin as a hair, uh, long, flexible, very fine. It's the kind of thing that allows information to be transmitted long distances, and it's a beautiful little, very compatible device. We can insert it deep into the brain without causing significant damage. And we can couple it on the other end to a laser. And the result is we're, we're able to get deep in the brain at, as far as we want and uh, play in effectively activity. Now, that was the earliest form. That was in 2007. By 2012, we had been able to get to single cell control by focusing spots of light. And just in 2019, that reached its uh, sort of full fruition where we used holograms to play in dozens or even hundreds of individual spots of light targeted to single cells. And so we can actually play the role of a, a conductor in an orchestra in some ways, or even in some ways more precise than a conductor in an orchestra. We can reach out to each individual musician in each individual cell and, and separately control them. All the while, let's say a, a mouse is carrying out complex actions and we can observe and quantify those actions. So that's that's the excitement of the light delivery approaches. In fact. One thing we've been engineering recently is extremely sensitive versions of these molecules. We call these particular proteins. These are called channel rhodopsins. These are beautiful little natural proteins from the algae, from other microbes. We've been able to turn one of these into a form that's so sensitive that we can actually bring in the light from completely outside... Uh, the skull uh, we don't even need surgery at all in uh, the most recent form of this uh, technology we can just shine in the light and these little molecules are so sensitive that the, the photons scatter into the brain and, and makes make interesting things happen
2: so you and your lab finally cracked this you refine the techniques you've you've made it better and better over the years but you know obviously like most big discoveries in science there was this was an idea that had been around the idea to use light for instance i think Um, I think it was Francis Crick's, was it?
3: Yes, it was. Um,
2: So what had been done before you got your hands on? What was the sort of groundwork that had been done before you got your your hands on it?
3: Yeah, what was so interesting about this is that the, uh, as you say, Francis Crick, obviously a very... uh, thoughtful scientist. Uh, He had turned his attention to neuroscience in in his later years uh, after the DNA structure work and many other advances that he made over the years. And in 1999, he published an opinion piece in the uh, Proceedings of the Royal Society where he said to really crack things open in neuroscience, we need a way to turn individual kinds of neurons on or off. And he said, I think the ideal signal would be light, but he said this would be far-fetched. He had no idea how to do it. Now, quite ironically, for all Crick's brilliance, this was in 1999, the key molecules, these opsins from microbes, had been known for decades. So in 1971, the first member of this family of proteins had been discovered by a, a pair of scientists in, at the University of California, San Francisco, and this was called a bacteria rhodopsin. That works perfectly well for optogenetics, by the way. And so for decades, these this class of proteins had been known, but they they were in microbes, they were in single celled organisms, algae, archaebacteria, and there was quite a conceptual gap to leap. Although the molecules were known, all these other attendant problems how do you get the light in? How do you target these? proteins reliably and in a versatile way to the right cells. How can you ensure that they're safe and don't cause toxicity? After all, these are quite foreign proteins that we'd be putting in. And all of these challenges added up to a huge energy barrier such that nobody uh, had tried it. What had been tried is more uh, close to home approaches. And so people had, had taken mammalian uh, proteins or, or even other animal proteins like from flies and tried to confer light sensitivity onto neurons following Crick's uh, call to action. These efforts, uh, although they didn't quite pan out to be broadly useful, several scientists had found ways to create light sensitivity in various ways. But the key difference, all of these were what we call multi-component systems. You had to do things in this very elaborate animal way of doing things where you had to put many different genes in and try to make it reliable and consistent. And it just didn't didn't work out as a versatile and generalizable technology. But the key landscape shift was saying, forget about animals. Let's take this extremely unlikely approach, these completely unrelated gene families from these microbes, from these single cell organisms that do things very efficiently. They make a single protein that does everything all in one. It both receives the photon and makes the ions flow across the membrane. A single protein, a single gene. Yes, it's all the way across the tree of life. Yes, it's completely unrelated to anything from animals, but... (laughs) If this worked, boy, that would make it very simple, robust, versatile, generalizable. And that's the approach we took. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
2: You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Carl Dyseroth and we're talking about his book (laughs) Connections, A Story of Human Feeling. And Carl, I want to then look at in a a bit more detail as an example of something that you've studied in the brain using optogenetics and I want to talk about the example you use in the book about how you've studied the various ways in which anxiety manifests itself in the brain.
3: So anxiety is the most common class of psychiatric disorder. It's very debilitating. It's poorly understood. And it's something that psychiatrists encounter all the time, but it's also part of the normal human experience. And it's a complex state. We've all been anxious. When we think about it, it's got different parts to it. When we're anxious, our heart rate is higher. We breathe faster. So there's physiology. Our body's different. But also we uh, feel bad. So there's this negative internal state that's a different thing from the the heart rate and the breathing. There's this negative quality to it. And then also there's a behavioral change. We are avoidant. We shy away from situations even if they're not acutely threatening, that might have a a concern in them. And that's a big source of very serious suffering and and dysfunction in people, that avoidance behavior. And all these different parts, these are all assembled somehow by our brain and create this anxious state. But we discovered using optogenetics, and we published this in 2013 in, in Nature, was that there was a control region in the brain that reached out with connections across the brain to effectively get these different parts of anxiety. There's a one connection that went out to the brainstem to get the respiratory rate changes, the breathing changes. Another connection went out to a structure called the lateral hypothalamus. That got the avoidance behavior, this uh, aversion to certain situations or contexts that might be threatening. And then, of course, then there was also this, this feeling bad aspect, and that was yet another connection across the brain from this control region. And so we were able to show, using optogenetics, turning individually these different connections on or off. That we could show how these different features, these different parts of anxiety, are brought together and tied up and create a coherent state, and that that was something that without the that real time and precise control of optogenetics would have been pretty hard to show otherwise. And when that study came out, I remember being contacted by people, you know, by email from across the world, people just thanking us for showing how physical and how biological uh, anxiety actually was and how it was a tractable material concept. And, and these are people, I remember one vividly, a person who told me he'd been unable to leave his house for years effectively because of severe anxiety, that had had a very sudden onset had come on quite unexpectedly. He'd been quite highly functional before and, and was now unable to leave his house. And, and he couldn't explain this to anybody. It was obviously very disappointing to him and to everybody else. But just to have the hope that that we now could point to precise, well-defined connections across the brain and say this is this is causing this. This is the physical substrate, the underpinnings for the suffering. But that brought such hope to this uh, gentleman that honestly, it was I didn't expect that, and it was quite moving to see.
2: You're doing these experiments in a lab. You know, you talk about it in the book, but I've also watched some videos online where you know you can shine the light on on a mouse and make it move in different ways the avoidance behavior, it will go one way up a maze rather than another. But yeah, I mean, if you say people are getting in touch and saying, you know, that this is proof that these are sort of physical manifestations in the brain, one would then take the logical leap that something could be done about that. So can you envisage this these techniques being used in a clinical setting at some point?
3: Well, uh, a few exciting uh, things to talk about on that front. First, once you understand the precise nature Of a symptom like these anxiety symptoms. And once you can point to particular cells or connections that are manifesting these, then any kind of treatment will become more powerful. It might be a medication or brain stimulation therapy targeted to those cells or connections. And we're not there yet, but now we know what to work on. Now we know where to start. This is very helpful, works together with so much other pioneering work over the years in psychiatry and neuroscience, not at all to say that, that it's all uh, you know dependent on optogenetics, but it really brings all of that work to the point where we can point to specific, well-defined biological elements and say, here's a target where we could look for medications that target these cells or these structures in a, in a precise way, instead of this older uh, chemical imbalance idea, which effectively treated the brain as a collection of, of chemicals that had its... its uh, it had some value, but we've moved beyond that into a new era now, and that's it's very rewarding to see. Now, that's that's the most straightforward application of, of these ideas and insights from optogenetics is now that we know what matters, any kind of treatment becomes more powerful. That's the biggest uh, and most important step forward. It's also quite interesting, though. My colleague uh, Botan Droska in Switzerland has now put some of these channel rhodopsins into people. He just published a, a couple of weeks ago a study in uh, nature medicine where they took a human being with a blindness syndrome a retinal degeneration and they put one of these channel rhodopsins into the eye into the retina of this human being and they found they were able to confer some uh, light sensitivity again in this person and so this was a, a beautiful study a direct application of optogenetics in, in human beings and and brought some some sight back to this person and so that was quite quite inspiring to see he's he and I published together you know, more than 10 years ago in an in, uh, in vitro delivery of these channel rhodopsins to human uh, retinas that had been taken out of people who had recently died. And, and we found that this did indeed work. Uh, to confer light sensitivity onto these human neurons, but that was that was you know a long time ago and not in living human beings. And this was a, a huge step forward. What just came out a couple of weeks ago? Now that's that's really exciting. But as I say, the biggest, most important significance of optogenetics is is understanding that makes any kind of treatment more powerful.
2: And could we talk about hydrogel tissue chemistry? What that yeah. is and how that advances these techniques.
3: Yeah, this is this is something that we uh, kicked off in 2013. This was a new way of looking at the brain. It's got some. It's completely different from optogenetics, but it's got a conceptual similarity in that you are keeping the brain intact or the tissue intact. You're not disassembling it, but you're able to reach in with precision and access individual cells or even individual molecules in the intact uh, tissue. This is a way of of studying. Something like the brain intact. This is not during life. This is done after life. It's a way of looking at the structure of of tissue, which normally is not transparent. Of course, we all know that if if you have a brain or a heart or or a liver, it's it, you can't see through it, and that's because not just pigments, but there's all what we call scattering of light. Photons that come in will bounce off in random directions, and so you won't be able to to see deep into the, the tissue without taking it apart. And what we discovered was that we could make that happen. Uh, We could give us deep access with light. We turned tissues into uh, really a new kind of of thing, a a composite between a hydrogel, which is like jello. It's like a a gelatin, water-filled, transparent uh, material. But we build that inside the tissue and we couple all the interesting molecules like RNAs or proteins, all these little biomolecules that do important jobs in, the, in in each cell and are different in each cell and confer function and identity purpose on each cell we couple all of these we anchor them to the hydrogel so they can't move and then we remove everything that's distracting all the pigments that scatter or absorb uh, light and we end we end up with it's like a jello or gelatin. It's transparent. You can see through it. You can see the individual molecules deep within. Uh, they're still where they originally were in the same cellular environment, which they were in. We can even sequence. We can even get genetic sequence from the uh, biomolecules like the RNAs. And so this is very exciting because now we can get rich Information on individual cells deep in in tissue and still have this spatial perspective of how they're arranged, even how they're connected. And that's uh, really swept around the world as well with a number of new variants uh, from our lab and other labs as well uh, being developed. So it's, and it works together with optogenetics because now you can get a deeper understanding of these cells that you've controlled with optogenetics and that modulate behaviors in specific and interesting ways. And then you can follow that up with saying, okay, I'd like to know a lot more about these cells that are so important behaviorally now. I'd like to know how they're wired up. I'd like to know their molecular identity, if you will. What what are the other molecules they have in them? Because that gives you insight into the system, that gives you targets. Maybe you can now design a medication that would bind to some of those molecules which these important cells express or, or produce. So that's the opportunity to bring these, these two technologies together. But they've uh, already been, uh, of course, uh, uh, useful for different uh, applications around the world.
2: We've spent a lot of time talking about the science and, you know, it is amazing and like something out of science fiction. But um, I'm conscious that we should talk a bit more about connections because there is there's a a lot more in the book than just the the explanations of optogenetics. And I particularly wanted to talk about, you know, as in a lot of these sort of medical memoirish books, you anonymize patient experience and, you know, represent the stories of patients that you've known over the years. But... I love the way that you, you represent the patients in there. Tell me something about how you've chosen to tell some of the patients' stories in the book.
3: Yeah, this is this was an important choice point for me. You know, you can only tell so many stories in a book, so I picked these these stories very carefully. These were all from the emergency psychiatry setting, people at the extremes of, of human experience and suffering. In many cases, people transformed by... Uh, global upheavals and personal upheavals or both at once there's uh, one story in particular that I'll talk about in a moment that really brought those two together and this is meaningful now because this is what we're all experiencing I think around the world we have global upheavals and and personal disruptions at the same time and and these these matter together <laughs> you know they they can relate to each other causally and also just change the experience and the outcome very fundamentally. And we're all thinking about this in terms of the pandemic and everything it's, it's brought. But this was a story of a, of a patient 20 years ago, who two weeks after 9-11, September eleventh, two 2001, he uh, was transformed. This was a person who had, he was a, a gentleman at retirement age uh, who had worked in business and he had never had a, a psychiatric uh, illness, nor had anybody in his family. And yet, Two weeks after 9-11, he had flipped into a full-blown, unmistakable mania. And this is a state, it's, it's a part of bipolar disorder. It's a very disruptive and mysterious and honestly quite interesting state where people become flipped into a state of high energy, decreased need for sleep increased rate of speech, uh, increased ideas, increased motivation, what we call greatly increased goal-directed activity, uh, elaborate plans. And this, of course, sounds good to some extent, but then it really becomes extreme, extremely disruptive, very risky behavior, very disruptive actions, and and ultimately can lead to very severe problems and even uh, death and so this, this is mania. And just to see this happen in this person in this particular context, and then thinking about what we're all going through now uh, around the world, I thought this was, a, this was an important story. And of course, it's anonymized and, and with the greatest respect for the, for the patients. I tell stories with the symptoms being accurately depicted, the symptoms that the patients are experiencing, words that, that mattered and that were used. But uh, of course, personal identity is, is protected.
2: And the other thing I think you do is, I think very movingly talk about the toll that working at the sharp end of medical practice takes on its practitioners as well, in, in terms of having, you know, having to deal with the loss and the extreme pain that you often experience with patients. Clearly, that's something that's obviously influenced your desire to study emotion over your career. But yeah, tell me just something about this, just about writing about the toll that the, the medical profession takes.
3: Well, it's this is something that nobody can quite prepare you for. They, they they can say it in words, but until you have that experience, it's like something you, you you can hardly be prepared for in part, not just because of the depths of the emotional swings that happen, but how it's every day. You know, you come in and there's a whole new set of disruptions and, and agonies and
2: so I've been talking to Carl Dysaroff. We've been talking about his book, Connections, A Story of Human Feeling, which is out now in the UK from Penguin Viking. Carl, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me.
3: It's my pleasure. It's been a wonderful conversation. And I hope uh, as a final thought is that I think the a goal of the book has been to really show the unity and the commonality of these, these inner experiences, these connections that we have and, and uh, both Among all of humanity, whether it's at the extremes of of human suffering or in our day to day, I think hopefully the book helps bring people together. And that's that's the that's the ultimate goal.
2: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89 Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes and even tell a friend.